This is Nate Wuggiehout and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from both our homes and the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss will turn over more than 10,000 previously deleted documents related to the GOP-ordered review of the 2020 presidential election. This is not all the documents, however, as some were deleted and could not be recovered. The Associated Press reports that many of the documents are duplicates and some date back to before 2010. Based on the testimony of an expert witness called by Voss's attorney, a Dane County judge declined to order any additional searches for text messages or emails. The new emails and texts were sent to the court days before the speaker was to be fined $1,000 per day for contempt of court, a fee that would have incurred that would have been incurred by taxpayers. A Wisconsin resident has been fined $2,400 for filing frivolous claims to the Wisconsin Elections Board. The New London man filed allegations of voter fraud against 2,352 voters, along with 253 unspecified allegations. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that the election board found that there was no basis for a reasonable suspicion that the election law had been violated. The vote to dismiss the allegations and find the complainant was 5 to 1. The man was invited as the sole witness for the Assembly Committee on Elections in a special hearing called to hear his testimony on election fraud. At the hearing, the man said that he spoke to hundreds of voters who wanted to vote but were turned away because someone voted else voted in their name. He was unable to produce a record of any of them. The man had previously been convicted of mail and bank fraud and was released from prison in 2014. Last night, WORT News reported on the sudden resignation of the UW-Whitewater Chancellor in protest to a proposed survey of UW students on free speech. Now, that survey, which was set to go out today to all undergrads, has been pushed back to fall of 2022. UW system students, faculty, and administrators voiced frustration about the survey, saying it defied research protocols and signaled political interference in the system. That's according to the Capital Times. This is the fourth change in plans pertaining to the survey in a matter of months. Earlier, this survey had been approved by central administration, then declined after objections by campus administrators. On Monday, it was ordered to go forward, and today, it was halted. The survey is a project of the UW Stouts Menard Center for the Study of Institutions and Innovation. In a statement Thursday, Timothy Scheel, director of the Menard Center, said the delay will allow the center to answer, quote, an avalanche of questions. Mark Koplovich, a UW-Madison professor of political science and public affairs, told WPR the survey asks little about university policy and is, quote, almost entirely a survey of people's feelings. Former Governor Scott Walker spoke on the UW-Madison campus yesterday, calling the university a place of Marxist indoctrination. The Daily Cardinal reports that Walker told the student group, GOP Badgers, that the university was hostile to conservative students and professors, but he didn't point to any specific policies or incidents. Walker said that anyone who is not fully supportive of, quote, a radical left-wing agenda is going to get grief on social media and in the dorm. The former governor also encouraged students to take free speech, take a free speech survey, which had been postponed until next semester. 
The city of Monona will pay $150,000 to settle a civil rights suit brought by a black man who was briefly detained by police at gunpoint in a home where he stayed in 2020. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that a federal judge rejected 25-year-old Keontae Furge's bid for punitive damage, finding that while the officer's conduct was constitutional, it was, quote, a good-faith effort to protect the community by investigating what they believed, however, wrongly, to be a possible crime. And now, on to today's top stories. Earlier this week, the state health department released a report outlining possible ways to combat the opioid pandemic. The report is a product of hearing input from impacted people around the state and could help guide the spending of hundreds of millions of dollars headed to Wisconsin to combat opioid use and overdoses. WORT producer Nate Wuggiehout has more. The state of Wisconsin is expecting around $420 million to combat the opioid pandemic. It's a settlement born out of a years-long multi-state lawsuit against four opioid manufacturers and distributors whose business practices allegedly helped spur the opioid epidemic. Wisconsin is expecting to start seeing the money soon within the next few months, though the hundreds of millions of dollars will be dispersed over several years. About 30% of it will go to the state and 70% will go to local health departments to combat the epidemic. And a new report from the state health department shows a way forward for how to use that money. The report released earlier this week by the Department of Health Services is a breakdown of around a dozen listening sessions with providers, substance abuse professionals, and people directly impacted by the epidemic across Wisconsin. The report, which received input from almost 1,500 people, outlines major places where changes can be made in order to effectively help those suffering from addiction. Dr. Elizabeth Salisbury-Afshar is an, an is an associate professor at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, where she specializes in improving the health and well-being of people who use drugs and alcohol. The approach that they're taking is the right one, which is which is really broad and um, I would say holistic, sort of ranging from preventive measures, um, including things that are really upstream. So trying to reduce rates of trauma, trying to reduce adverse childhood experiences, So really thinking broadly about all the things that increase risk for the development of addiction at a later time. One major theme of the report is increasing support and recovering programs. More than a third of people who spoke at the listening sessions said that the state should help increase the amount of recovery housing options available and to make them more affordable. One person who spoke at the session said that, When they were addicted to opioids, they either were unable to get into any treatment program or they couldn't afford the treatment itself. Another speaker said that rural parts of Wisconsin faced the least options for treatment as limited resources and the distance between treatment providers lead many people not to seek treatment. Also in the report are different harm reduction strategies the state can implement to assist those currently addicted to opioids. One such strategy is increasing the access to Narcan, a nasal spray that reverses an opioid overdose, which is available in pharmacies without a prescription. In Madison, the drug is available at some local public health offices and at some distribution drop boxes throughout the city. 
The report also points to distributing fentanyl testing strips to counties across the state, especially as the substance is involved in a majority of drug overdose deaths. Until recently, fentanyl testing strips were considered drug paraphernalia and were illegal to possess. A bipartisan bill signed into law three weeks ago decriminalizes their use. Rob McCreary is the assistant director at Connections Counseling, a rehabilitation center in Madison. He says that there is no one solution to the opioid epidemic, which is why having various harm reduction strategies at your disposal is important. There's more than one path to to help people with the opioid crisis. So, for example, there's a whole lot of people that, that view medication is sort of a magic bullet that eliminates the risk and and it can be really effective for some people but necessarily the best route for everyone. Dr. Salisbury Afshar says opioid addiction is a systemic problem that requires systemic solutions. I think that uh you know, we have a major capacity issue. Just because there's more money doesn't mean that there are more healthcare professionals, doesn't mean that there are more addiction counselors. Um, and so I think this is really, like, we have to think about pipeline issues. I think we have to, we have to really think about how are we going to create a sustainable system. And when we think about creating systems of care, particularly in the addiction space, it is rare that we ask people with addiction, particularly with active addiction, like, what do you want? What would be a treatment system that makes sense? In 2020, 1,227 people in Wisconsin died from opioid overdoses, and the data shows that opioid deaths did not wane during the pandemic. They spiked. In early March, the Dane County Public Health Department issued an overdose spike alert, warning that ambulance and hospital data were showing more than double the number of drug-involved overdoses than normal. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuckie-Hout. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last year, the Waukesha School District implemented a new policy banning political or controversial signs and flags throughout the school. While the stated purpose of the policy was to decrease tension throughout the school, community members say that the policy is not being implemented fairly. Today, the ACLU of Wisconsin announced that they filed an open records request to the school district to find out why the policy was implemented and how the school has used it. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with staff attorney with the ACLU, Chris Donahoe, earlier today about the request and what they are looking to find. So, Chris, to begin, why did you file this records request with the Waukesha School District? What are you looking for? Several members of the community in Waukesha, including teachers and parents and other community members, had approached the ACLU letting us know about this change of policy. It had also been widely reported in the news, and we had been hearing reports that not only was there this ban on controversial or political material in the schools, but that it wasn't necessarily being applied consistently, 
And it certainly seemed, based on everything that we had heard, that it seemed to be targeting certain viewpoints, specifically viewpoints in support of Black Lives Matter, LGBT community, and um, other viewpoints wanting to create, you know, safe spaces and promote diversity and inclusion. So we submitted this open records request to find um, out more about exactly how Waukesha came to to this policy and how they're deciding to enforce it. And now I want to get into sort of the ramifications of this policy in a bit. But first, I want to do a little history. Can you tell me a little bit about this policy that forbade political or controversial signage from being displayed? How, how did it come about and how do they decide what is controversial? I can tell you what I've heard, but the, just again, the purpose of this open records request is to find out what's actually been documented and what what the district says has been going on. So what I understand and what has been reported is that the district has taken a number of actions that have altogether reduced these efforts to create a diverse, inclusive, and welcoming environment. So not only did they ban signs in the classroom that teachers had put up that said safe space or that, that had messaging supporting the LGBT community, they also disbanded the equity leadership team. They canceled what had been ongoing consulting from a national consultant on diversity and equity issues. They had removed some material from their websites, removed links from their websites that promoted, again, equity and inclusion. And then they also were taking down locker science that students put up that were Gay Straight Alliance locker science. That's a student group at some of these schools um, that promotes LGBT community members. So there were several different actions, as far as I understand, that the district took. And what the what the district said in their statements is that they wanted to remove political and controversial messages from the school. And I, I understand that this was the idea was to reduce what might be conflict in, instigated by having different political messages. But the problem is that if you look at it from 10,000 feet, it certainly looks like the district is cracking down on one particular viewpoint and if that's the case, that would be in violation of the First Amendment and possibly other laws, especially when it comes to student speech and their right to express opinions. And now you mentioned the First Amendment there. Can you sort of explain and walk me through how is this sort of thing a First Amendment issue? Uh, what sort of things that you've seen and heard coming out of the school sort of ticked you off on this? Well, students have a First Amendment right to learn, first of all, and to hear about history and their community in total, they also have a right to express their views. Now, they don't have the same right that an adult has on the sidewalk, but students do have free speech rights in schools. They can come and they can express their viewpoints so long as it doesn't cause a substantial disruption. That's essentially what the, the Supreme Court case law has said for decades and decades. So when students put up locker signs to show their support for the Gay-Straight Alliance or to put up really any political message, so long as it doesn't cause a substantial disruption, they should have a right to do that in most cases. 
in cases where schools are allowing other students to have locker signs or to wear T-shirts or to wear other um, pins or accessories to support, for example, pride, gay pride, um, then they need to be allowing students with any perspective, any viewpoint to express themselves so long as it's not a substantial disruption. So if the schools are taking down student locker signs for the Gay Straight Alliance, but allowing other locker signs, like, for example, other clubs that are not curricular, then that would be a violation of those students' free speech rights. And now one thing that you mentioned in the press release that you released earlier today was uh, sort of how this works in relation to more right-wing issues. I believe you mentioned like the thin blue line flag in the press release. Have you heard of instances of pro-life and thin blue line flags being able to be left up in the school while other flags have been taken down? We have heard that there has been at least one thin blue line sign allowed up, that there is a poster or a sign of Ronald Reagan, and that there might be some other right uh, conservative political materials that are being distributed. And again, we don't know exactly what's going on, which is why we submitted this open records request. We want to better understand exactly what's going on, and we want records to show what's going on. But if that's the case, um, and they're taking down, you know, just for example, it's been reported that one of the signs that the district has said has to come down in classrooms is the district's own non-discrimination policy. So it, it begs the question exactly how are people deciding what is political and what is controversial? And why would the district's own non-discrimination policy be political or controversial, but not a thin blue line sign? So we, we talked about the First Amendment, but there are other laws that the district could be violating, including the due process clause of the Constitution. Because if the district has a policy like this that is so vague that teachers don't know how to respond to it or how it will be interpreted, if they don't know that the district's own non-discrimination policy is somehow political or controversial and they therefore have to take it down, then the teachers aren't being given proper notice of what they're supposed to do. And this leaves everybody in the school on edge and it puts teachers in an impossible position, not to mention violating their own due process rights. I know you sort of got tipped off to this by parents and people in the community talking to you. What has sort of been the reaction of community members to how this policy is being implemented? What did they have to say? Community members in Waukesha organized right away back in the summer when they found out about this policy. There's the Waukesha Alliance for Education, and then there are other individuals, and there may be other smaller groups of people that have all been working together and reaching out to the press and reaching out to the district and submitting their own open records request to try to stand up for their students' right to express themselves and their students' right to go to a school that is welcoming and safe for them. Because one of the issues here is that the district has an independent duty to make sure that schools are free of harassment and bullying and to make sure that these schools are not hostile environments for their students. We all know how hard it is to be a kid. I remember how terrible it was to be a teenager, to be in middle school and to be in high school. And it's so much harder for students of color, for students who are LGBT 
And the district has a duty to make sure that the school is a safe place where those students, where all students can come and learn without fear of harassment and bullying. So these parents and community members are very concerned about their students' ability to go to school free of harassment and bullying and for their teachers to be able to offer a space that, um, that where students can, can learn. And so they're just very concerned about the district pulling away from efforts to ensure that these schools are not hostile environments for the kids who are at most risk and most marginalized. And so now you filed this records request. Have you heard any response from the Waukesha School District yet? Uh, When do you expect to be able to see the documents? We got a response indicating that they received our request and they'll begin working on it. They expect that it'll take some time since we requested a significant amount of records. And I'm hoping that it's a matter of weeks and not months, but we'll certainly be following up. And Chris, do you have just any final thoughts you'd like to share with me? I guess I'd like to add that, unfortunately, schools have become the epicenter of this highly partisan divide and the very toxic political system in political environment that we have in this country. And it seems like instead of trying to guide and mentor students to engage in political conversation and to be able to express their views in a civil and calm way, the district is trying to say, well, no one should be discussing anything or expressing anything. And on top of that, they're not even enforcing that idea equitably or consistently across, you know, the various viewpoints. And that's problematic for several reasons. I've been talking with Chris Donahoe, staff attorney with the Wisconsin ACLU, about the open records requests they have filed against the Waukesha School District. Chris, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Isthmus on Wart dives into the supposed issues of furries in the Wanakee School District. Fermenting Wart gets ready for the spring weather with its best beers for the season. And Radio Chipstone heads out to find the beauty of abandoned buildings. But now we'll take a quick break and we'll check in with some of those world headlines back in a flash. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host and producer Nate Wiggyhout. Thanks for joining us. Policies for kids who dress up as animals in our schools may seem like a ridiculous sentiment, but after a conservative radio host accused Wanakee schools of providing special privileges for furries, the accusation quickly circulated social media as true. Dylan Brogan, senior reporter for Isthmus, spoke with Nate Wiggyhout earlier today about his article for today's Isthmus on Warp. Last month, conservative radio host Vicki McKenna made a false claim that the Wanakee School District had a policy in place to, quote, 
normalize the behavior of furries, a claim that is now being circulated as fact on social media. Furries, if you're not aware, are people who recreationally dress up as anthropomorphized animals. With me today is Dylan Brogan, senior reporter for Isthmus, who wrote an article on McKenna's recent claims. Dylan, thank you so much for being here with me. Hello, Nate. Uh, so, Dylan, let's just get this stupid question out of the way first. Are schools installing litter boxes for kids who identify as furries and encouraging them to dress up as furries? No. They're not. This is n not a thing. Great. Now, why do people think this? You know what? That is a, a very good question, and I think there are. it's a complicated answer. Unlike if Wanakee has a furry protocol, and this has caused all sorts of uh, just concern, and it's all people have been talking about in Wanakee all week. And it's really been... Uh, like, it, it all just stemmed from uh, talk radio host Vicki McKenna. A lot of people are probably familiar with her. She's been around forever. Just reading an email she received from a parent or a grandparent from Wanakee that uh, describes how, hey, I wanted you to let you know. I think it's just I'm appalled that Wanakee School District is has this policy and furry kids are allowed to bark and hiss and, and like they don't have to participate in gym class and they can curl up at the feet of their teachers and purr like it reads like a joke but in in uh but Vicky McKenna read this on um a guest of hers uh, his name is Dr. Duke Pesta and he's a UW Oshkosh professor who teaches Shakespeare. But uh, if you go to his podcast, it's the Dr. Duke Show, it's just nothing but right-wing conspiracy theories left, right, from all over the country. And how in the world Wanakee got brought into this... Uh, it's become a nationwide thing of lawmakers, and there's been law Republican lawmakers in Wisconsin who are concerned that the that schools are installing litter boxes for kids who identify as cats or, or other animals. And I I don't know why we have to say it, but the wokest school district in the country doesn't have this. And, uh, you know, that's not what gender is. And so we can just sit here and say, well, these are stupid claims that they are saying. But I want to ask you, what sort of makes these sort of things dangerous? What are sort of the consequences of making these kind of claims? Well, oh, yeah. Well, OK. So Vicky McKenna gets an email and all of a sudden she's saying she has several. Oh, she gets a couple people comment on a Facebook page and now she has a confirmed proof. Right. And when you don't believe in institutions, which is kind of a problem in a lot of ways in this country where the, where uh, the only people who would know answers are the only people you can't believe. Right. So even and I saw this on this was just going crazy on social media in Wanakee. People still don't believe it. They think the school district is hiding and i just don't like uh, how does this implement itself i mean i don't think it makes sense if you even believe it and think it through you know like uh, can you imagine custodians do they have a big bag of litter in like a huge scoop that they're using to clean up these litter boxes like it doesn't make sense and uh but i think it speaks to uh, people's just they are in such tight like media um, echo chambers and they're so siloed off and they don't believe anything uh, from some sources which can be you know if you, if you don't believe the Ma the Wanakee school district what they have to say and you think they're lying to you well how the hell are, how the hell are you gonna disprove this claim
Who are you going to believe? So I think that's part of it. And but no, I in fact this has sort of inspired me to really look at uh, fake news and everything a, a bit more in in a way that I didn't before, even though it's something that comes up a lot. And this isn't even just a Dane County thing. I know there's several schools across Wisconsin where this claim has been made, specifically like up in Green Bay and then also some schools over in Michigan. So I want to ask, did, well, there... let's be clear here. Let's okay. spread. There's the furry claim. Okay. That's that children are allowed to dress up in elaborate co- animal costumes right. and cosplay being an animal all day. Right. Okay. Which is, you know, a hobby. That's not like a sexuality. Right. And then there's the litter boxes, but they do seem very <laughs> tied together. I'll admit that. And, I, and so I heard about the litter boxes on Friday at the Ron mm-hmm. Johnson event. And then uh, because of that, actually, somebody was like, hey, I, what is this about? And it was just starting to blow up. And I, April Fool's made it very difficult at first <laughs> to figure this out. But this wasn't said on April Fool's. This was said in, in the middle of March. And it really just started to take off because of a video posted of Vicki McKenna um, on April Fool's. But she said it about two weeks earlier. And all of this, all of this oh, is happening. Oh, and she didn't deny it, too. I emailed her. She emailed me back. She's just like, oh, I got an email from a parent. And then a bunch of people are saying this is happening. Now, it took me about one minute to call the <laughs> superintendent. And there's like, we know about this. It's not a thing. And so all of this is happening around the school board races as well. Do you think that there's a connection there with how this is all happening? I think that does have a lot to do with it, that there has been a nationwide targeted effort at um, local school boards. And, hey, there's a lot of great articles out right now about there certainly was some conservative school board members who uh, and, and, you know, kind of conservative areas who had gained seats and and maybe in some more moderate areas, too. Um, But in a way, I think that may be okay because these school board members, I don't get once you're elected to the school board, I think they're going to realize that these claims are outrageous and maybe convince some other people who voted for them that they are, too. Um, and people are allowed to select that. But in general, I think conservatives did do pretty well school board uh, on school board races across the state. You know, you get here in Madison, they obviously didn't. So I think it depends on the community. I've been talking with Dylan Brogan about his article in Isthmus about the false claims that Wanakee School District has policies in place for student furries. While you can read that article online, you can read Dylan's companion piece on Ron Johnson's listening session, which we talked about. Uh, You can read that in print right now, which is available across the city. So, Dylan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me and looking into these just stupid claims. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. And it does sound funny at first, but the more I went down this rabbit hole and believe me, there's nothing funny about what's going on right now. So um, let's just hope this is a passing, a passing fad. So thank you, Nate. Fermenting Wart focuses on the craft of beer brewing in the state of brewing in Wisconsin. This week, feature producer Colin Morgan pours some spring beer styles to help shake off the winter blues. This is fermenting wort. I'm your host, Colin Morgan. Even if it doesn't look like it, it is springtime. We can start to leave behind our coats, get outside, host some parties, and even start going to beer festivals. The heavy, fortifying, and sustaining beers of winter are starting to sound more and more unappealing to me. Before you break out the White Claws, perhaps there are some transition brews that fit the season better. 
Today, we will talk about some appropriate styles for the coming months and pairings that just make sense. Last week, I had a conversation with James Kramer of Wisconsin Brewing Company about Bach beer. The traditional Lenten beers are strong and flavorful and feel right at home in the cool, rainy Wisconsin spring. And there are several local examples that are worth sipping this year. Working Draft Brewing Company on East Wilson Street in Madison has a fantastic Doppelbach called Kloster Aid. The name is an homage to the birthplace of many German doppels, the Kloster or Monastery. This is the beer that I will be bringing to Easter Sunday. It has a deep burgundy red complexion and a full, luscious, caramel, almost chocolatey malt flavor that will pair very nicely with Grandma's Easter ham. The saltiness in the ham will bring out and contrast the sweetness in the malt perfectly, I'm thinking. New Glarus's Gyrator Doppelbach, on the other hand, is quite different from Working Draft's version. Lighter in body, but similar in strength, Gyrator finishes just a little drier. For me, this screams Mexican food. Gyrator has this roasty, oaky, cola-like complexity that is going to be fantastic with a spicy chili dish. Normally, I would reserve a Mexican amber or a Vienna lager for Mexican dishes, uh, but this is going to be a great substitute. The sweetness can stand up to spice and enhance earthy sauces like a mole or an adobo. Grilled and stewed or braised beef or pork would be excellent. While it might not be traditional, uh, last week I used a bottle in some barbacoa. Uh, the smoky chilies and Doppelbach blended absolutely beautifully. So Bachs are bold, and they still kind of remind us of the winter chill, but I'm looking forward to warm weather, and there are some other spring styles that are a little more balmy. Saison is another classic style associated with springtime. Once, this was a relatively unknown style, a few examples in the States, but not many, but it has come back in a very big way. Traditionally, these come from Wallonia, the French-speaking region in the south of Belgium, although some would say the true origin is up for debate. For the romantics out there, which I consider myself, the tale goes something like this. Small farmer-owned breweries in the south of Belgium could not produce beer in the summertime. This was due both to the high temperatures potentially spoiling the brews and the fact that farmers were too busy tending to their fields to brew anyway. So they brewed a slightly stronger beer in the winter months to be consumed in the spring and summer. It had to be strong enough to fend off would-be spoilage microbes, but light enough to quench the thirsts of the hard-working farmhands. This beer was called saison, or season, specifically the spring season. Like many brewing mythologies, there is probably some truth to this, uh, but probably more marketing. Regardless, saison beer is a great 
beer for the spring season. Although no two are quite alike, you can usually expect a slight tang or tartness, usually low esters uh, and fruitiness. Some fruitiness is acceptable, but moderate to high phenolic spice notes is usually found, and they are always dry. If you have not had a bottle of the classic Saison Dupont, that is the quintessential Saison, and it stands alone. Peppery, lemony, peachy, anisey, earthy, countless flavors coming out of those bottles. Uh, and no two bottle are even the same, but all are fantastic. Uh, it is great with goat cheese and fig salad or goat cheese and fig pizza. My personal favorite uh, is pepper steak to pair it with. The light acidity of the beer cuts the fat and the spice notes and pepper on the crust of the steak really match well. The Belgian and French saisons are wonderful, but Wisconsin actually produces some splendid examples as well. Door County Brewing Company and their experimental Hacienda Brewing in Bailey's Harbor routinely produces seasonal saison beers that are all great. L'hiver, an oak-fermented saison, conditioned on spruce tips, is tart, refreshing, phenolic, and absolutely fantastic. I think it would be great for a barbecue or perhaps some aged goat cheese. Closer to home, Funk Factory Guzeria, in my excellent French-Belgian, specializes in traditional Lambique-style beer. Currently, they have a fooder-fermented tart saison aged on cranberries and spruce tips called Pathfinder. I will admit I have not tried this beer, but wow, does that sound fantastic and about as Wisconsin as it gets. So I only described two styles during this short segment, but there are many styles to consider trying this year, especially if you are new to beer. Irish styles are always in season this time of year and are extremely approachable. Many British Isle beers would go well with Easter foods, and are easy to understand while containing loads of flavor. Maybe try to get some relatives or friends to try something new instead of grabbing the latest trendy mass-produced seltzer flavor. Try a beer that has been developed for the season and tested for decades or centuries even. Surely all those beer enthusiasts can't be wrong. Thank you for listening. This is Fermenting Wart. It's now 6.48 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. According to Caitlin St. John, her fascination with architecture was the result of teenage curiosity and a need to get out of the house. St. John is now a multimedia artist and in her current exhibit entitled Dream House is on display at Tandem House Press. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, St. John tells contributor Jennifer Fields about how her New England upbringing continues to inform her work. I grew up in New England so there's a lot of old textile mills and paper mills, so there's a lot of stuff that's just kind of sitting around empty, which 
is an interesting thing based on like how much space there is in New England. It's always surprising when you find something that's just sitting there rotting because there's not a lot of room. <laughs> so you'd think that things would turn over, but I've always found that it's interesting thinking about the history of these buildings and in a way kind of creating a narrative for these histories because I don't know them specifically. I never go back and uh, research the building um, itself. I kind of tend to project and imagine. It's a lot of imagination, <laughs> which like, you know, is a silly word when you're talking about art, right? It's all imagination. But um, I'm imagining who inhabited the space, who owned the space, why is it, why is there a hole in the side of the building? But I kind of like the, the mystery also. So in owning my own experience in this space and trying to translate that for a viewer, I kind of tend to is like issue the actual history of the building. It's interesting because it just seems to be when you think about areas and you think about, especially New England, it mm -hmm. has such a rich history. Oh, definitely. And everybody wants to tell you that rich history because yeah. somehow <laughs> if they're from there, they're tied to it, yep. which really kind of sets them apart from mm -hmm. folks who aren't. There's this mystery about New England. There's this, yeah. this assumption that there's wealth and there's mm -hmm. excess and there's opulence and there's luxury, but here we are standing in a room full of yeah. photographs and standing right next to a sculpture mm -hmm. that looks like, because I used to be a carpenter. Oh, well. A hundred <laughs> years ago. You probably have more wood skills than I do. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> so this looks like a ceiling joist or a floor joist yeah. or something that was responsible for holding something up, mm -hmm. but here it is on the floor, yeah. weathered, so it's not really the New England that we think of. No, I think the forward, the forward lens of New England is exactly what you're talking about, right? But I feel like my, and, and I had that experience. I grew up in um, Amherst, Massachusetts, which is like a five college area. So there's a lot of wealth. I was never part of that wealth. Um, we grew up kind of skimping on everything so that, you know, I could go to the good school system, right? So. I felt a little more tied to, I'm not gonna say underbelly, that's not the correct term, but the other, si the other side of the coin, where um, it isn't these big fancy mansions and ski houses and you know people who come up to see the foliage. It's, it's, it's just everyday life, you know, people trying to get by. And my town was pretty divided also into like where all the apartments were, uh, like low-income housing and, you know, the big fancy houses up on the hill for the professors. So, and I found that a lot of the architecture was, or the dilapidated architecture was on my side of town, in walking distance. Of know? course. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, out of sight, out of mind for those who right. can look over it. Like exactly. even, even though, not only from their station in life, but probably perhaps the actual structures that they inhabit. Right, it's kind of forgotten. And that was always interesting to me because like you said, this is a beam that would hold up a building, but it's fallen down. All these, all these places have fallen down, fallen into disrepair. And that, it feels more true. With these, with these buildings, I mean, they are crumbling to pieces, kind of returning 
to the earth in a way. I kind of see the cycle of life in them. um, And I do think that I'm bringing that life back to these places by inhabiting them when I'm photographing them, when I'm obsessing over them. I mean, I, I have two images of this split house here. I just obsess over this house. And that's what, that's what these, um, the, the sculptures are. I tried to mimic, not exactly recreate, but pull pieces out of this house. Um, not literally, like I didn't bring the wood from Connecticut where I found it to here, but you know, reminiscent of what I'm seeing. Caitlin, do you think that part of why you're drawn to this is that the other aspects of your home, your hometown, mm-hmm. get so much attention? Do you think that's part, like you're not necessarily championing, but you want people mm-hmm. to remember, have like a, a tactile sense of what the history of this place is? I think it's more connecting to the rest of the world in a way. The Pioneer Valley is kind of, it's a bubble. Like it's a very, very liberal and wealthy bubble in Massachusetts and in the country. I mean, far more liberal than, you know, even Boston, I think. Um, And I think that, and what I've learned from being in Wisconsin and half of this work is Wisconsin. It's not all New England, but you find these everywhere. It's kind of part of the American experience. I mean, drive down any highway, you see a falling down barn or, you know, houses that have been vacated um, or forced to be vacated. Uh, So I think it's kind of my way of connecting, connecting back to what seems more like the the real experience of America. because, you know, like I said, I didn't really experience the wealth. It's, it's, it was like, it's always been a little tough, you know? I, I feel like I've been toughened my life, you know? Um, where you're just trying to like grit through it. And I just, I see that in these buildings and in the fact that they're empty, you know? Does that also, is that also part of your presentation for the work? Because even in the prints, they're fragments. They're fragments on these, on these broad, open, white, very pristine, mm-hmm. white canvases, white spaces, white mm-hmm. paper. Yeah, I was, I was making them as uh, full rectangles for a long time as kind of a picture window, but that didn't feel like the true experience of the places. Um, a lot of, I mean, when you're in these spaces physically, uh, there's a lot of obstruction um, you never really get a full view of a room. It's often like you're peering around a beam or like the trash that, you know, high school kids have left in the building kind of thing. So uh, just physically, I felt like fragmenting the space was true to the experience. But also, the buildings themselves are fragmented. I mean, uh, this house that I'm obsessing over was literally a bisected building on the highway, like completely cut horizontally open to the street, which was wild that it was A, still standing, 
And there was a there was a house behind it with like I think somebody was home when I was photographing it. So it's just it's weird. And and inside it there's this like perfectly hung raincoat. Like what is that? Who whose is that? Why is it still there? But as far as the fragments, I think that uh, I'm also trying to represent the space between my experience and my memory of the place, um, which is why I've called this exhibition Dream House. I feel like memories plus experience equals dreams. Um, and dreams are fragments, you know. It's never a linear narrative, right? <laughs> Things kind of pop in and pop out. So um, I think I've tried to focus in on the piece of this place that I've been obsessing over. Because even when I'm obsessing over a full building that I've seen, it's kind, I kind of zero in on the one thing that really got me to like pull over the car. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer tonight was David Aaron. Special thanks to feature contributors Colin Morgan and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout was your producer and reporter for this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Nate Wegehout. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you might get your podcasts. Up next is their Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night. W-O-R-T Not